Welcome to Working for Women, the independent women's forum podcast, where we are changing the conversation about women and public policy for the better. Hello, I'm Julie Gunlock, Director of the Culture of Alarmism Project at the Independent Women's Forum. Today, I'm here with Jillian Melcher, Senior Fellow at the Independent Women's Forum, where she focuses on energy policy and government corruption, which I'm sure keeps her very busy. She's also an investigative reporter for National Review and a fellow for the Franklin Center for Government Integrity. Jillian, thanks so much for being with me today. Oh, thanks for having me. Okay, so today we're going to be discussing fracking, which is short for hydraulic fracturing. It's a process to extract oil and natural gas from rocks deep underground. Jillian, you write a lot on this subject, much more than me and and many others. Um, So I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about fracking, uh, what it is exactly, how it's done, and how long has this process been around? Yeah, well, it's. I think it'll catch people by surprise that this is actually something that we've been doing for decades and decades. In fact, the first person to do fracking was a you know a Civil War uh, veteran who ended up figuring out that if he dropped an explosive down a hole, he could crack open these energy thick sort of rock formations underground. It's come a long way since then. It's gotten a lot safer. Um, so basically, the concept is that it's it's two innovations that have really I guess, created the energy revolution in the United States. And the first is hydraulic fracturing. That's, you know, sticking, injecting water underground to crack open these energy-intensive rock formations. And the other one is horizontal drilling, which, you know, you can kind of look at it. So if you have a rock formation, you can imagine if you went straight down, you wouldn't cover a lot of area. But if you went horizontally, you'd be able to access a lot more of it. So this new drilling technique, you can kind of imagine it as if you got, you know, like a spaghetti noodle before it had been cooked. The pipe kind of bends. It's got a little bit of bend in it, and it allows you to cover a little bit more ground um, underneath the Earth's surface and really tap those energy resources. And that's important because the United States is home to a ton of them. We've got about 110 years' worth of natural gas. 220 billion barrels of oil by government statistics. But until recently, most of that was inaccessible. Fracking and hydraulic uh, hydraulic fracturing and horizontal drilling have opened that up. So, yeah, you mentioned, um, you know, how much oil that we've been able and natural gas that we've been able to get through this process. Um, I, I want you to talk a little bit about, if you can talk a little bit about how it has helped all Americans in, in, in sort of practical terms. I mean, you know, I know that we've had some energy savings, and, and that might be good if you can talk a little bit about um, how much energy savings we've seen. But I also am interested in, in, in how it's helped Americans in broader terms with jobs, job creation, um, creating less expensive products. I think people forget that oil um, is often, um, you know, a, a main component in plastic products. And so the more oil we have, the, the cheaper these plastic products be- can become. So um, if you can touch on that a little bit, just how has this particular kind of method of extracting these these um, energy sources, how it's helped Americans? Yeah, well, I think it's, it's had huge repercussions all across the U.S. economy and really benefited consumers the most. So you can look, first of all, at energy savings. And in 2013 alone, fracking saved consumers about $248 billion in total. So what that translates to for the average American household is about $2,000 in savings on a utility bill. And then as we end up tapping U.S. oil a little bit more, Americans are saving about $60 a month at gas stations right now. 
So that's kind of the obvious one. More counterintuitively, you've got American jobs. You know, the oil and gas production um, energy sector was one of the very few that actually grew during the recession. It grew by about 40%, while private sector employment was growing by just about 1%. So it creates about 9.8 million jobs. And then, as you mentioned, you know, it's it's a huge input in consumer goods, uh, everything from plastics to medicine, uh, medicines to synthetic fibers. And, you know, energy is also a huge input into the manufacturing process in general because it is energy intensive. And then I think probably the most counterintuitive way that helps consumers is that natural gas, which we're being able to use more often, is the cleanest of all traditional energy sources. And so as it crowds out, you know, dirtier sources, the air actually gets cleaner. So, for example, in 2012... Um, the U.S. had the cleanest air that it's had in 20 years, and that's something that the federal government largely attributed to natural gas crowding out coal for electricity generation. That has a huge impact all across the economy. Well, that is so interesting. You know, you mentioned this $2,000 in savings on utility bills, $60 a month on gas. These savings are incredible, and particularly for people who live at or under the poverty line. I mean, I think the savings on energy costs, you know, I mean, we know um, that these are particularly important for the poorest in this country, and which is why fracking is so important, because it is because of this technology that we've seen lower costs. Um, you know, I, I, I saw last year there was a Senate report um, put out by Senators Murkowski and Scott, they found that only a 10% increase in home energy costs um, would push 840,000 people, almost a million people, into um, poverty. And so I'd like you to talk about some of the proposed regulations on fracking and how will it impact, you know, how, how will these regulations impact these sort of savings that we've seen that, again, particularly help the poorest in this country? Yeah, I mean, it, it does really impact the poor because when energy prices go up by just a little, it swallows a lot more of their budget every month. So, you know, I think they've definitely benefited from cheap energy, and they, they stand to lose the most if energy prices go up. And I think probably one of the most destructive policies is, you know, the federal government, to some extent, has wanted to regulate fracking on federal lands, on tribal lands. But in addition to that, you've got the federal government and state governments trying to incentivize the use of renewable energy sources. And that's a little bit tricky because, you know, they've spent very heavily in this, but renewable energy right now provides only about 15% of all electricity. It's also by far the most expensive. And so when you force utility companies to buy that more, you know, expensive renewable energy as opposed to natural gas, that's going to immediately hike bills and it's really going to hurt the people at the margins. So we've explained what fracking is or you've explained what fracking is and and we've talked about the benefits of fracking and the lower costs, um, energy costs that have come because of it. I'd like to talk a little bit about the alarmism um, that (laughs) surrounds fracking. Sadly, um, support for fracking among Americans, I don't know about the polling, maybe you can can comment on that. You know, it isn't exactly strong and, and much of that is due to the myths surrounding the process. So, you know, why are they doing it? What's the benefit? Yeah, well, I mean, I think Americans really enjoy cheap energy prices, but, you know, they want to make sure that it's done safely. And that is something that I was concerned about as I began reporting on this. And I think one of the things that really kind of changed my mind was I went on a tour of a fracking site out in Pennsylvania. And it was fascinating to me to see how much science went into it, how high-tech it was. So you had people, you know, standing in a trailer, monitoring in real time, 
how much water was being pumped below, what the chemical content of that was, you know, just checking off on their checklist as it's happening, any number of things that's going to make it safe. It was just incredibly carefully monitored. And then you've got at a state level, um, I think states have done a, a phenomenal job for the most part in looking at the needs of their state, looking at the unique geology, some of the risks posed and regulating in a, in a way that makes sense for their state, protects the environment, but also allows energy exploration to occur. So regardless of that, I, th- I think that's not the impression a lot of Americans get. Because yeah. once you throw out something that's a little bit alarmist, um, for example, there was a study about earthquakes, that fracking causes earthquakes. And that went all over the headlines. People were freaking out about it. At the Culture of Alarmism Project, we talk a lot about the messages that work. And frankly, um, telling people that this particular method is going to cause an earthquake or it's going to in some way harm the drinking water. Can you tell us a little bit about does fracking cause earthquakes? Um, I know there's been this new study. It's made headlines. Um, You know, you've got newscasters sweating when they talk about it, um, (laughs) you know, and and also, you know, this idea that somehow fracking causes uh, water reserves in in towns to to somehow become, you know, unpotable. Well, let's start with the water one. With it, there's been just a ton of research, very extensive research into where fracking could potentially contaminate groundwater. And, I mean, these are high-level studies. We're talking, you know, federal studies, the Department of Energy, the EPA, um, top colleges and universities looking into it. And they've come back again and again saying, you know, there's not really any instance we can point to directly where the fracking process itself has contaminated groundwater. I mean, you've got the head of the EPA saying this. You've got, you know, the head of the Department of Energy saying it. So I think those are pretty credible sources that have really delved into the science. Now, where there is somewhat of a risk is, you know, with any industrial activity, if you were to spill something on the surface that could potentially contaminate water, if there were to be an accident somewhere on the surface, but that's not fracking and that's not unique to the energy industry. So I think, you know, that's that's something to be concerned about, but states have looked at it. Now, with the earthquake issue... That's a little bit more fascinating. So there is this study that I referenced that had taken place about, I don't know, two or three months ago. And the idea was that in Ohio, um, for the first time, I think in the United States, there had been a link between earthquakes and fracking. So I actually called up the author of the study and had a chat with him, wanted to really understand what he was seeing. And their study was pretty cool, actually. What they ended up doing was... uh, connecting all of this data about fracking sites in their state and syncing it up with seismic activity. So is seismic activity an earthquake? Well, yes, technically, but the strongest one that was recorded was about how it would feel if you had like a gallon of milk on a table and knocked it off. We're, we're talking about like a minor reverberation in the ground uh, as opposed right. to like, you know, something that's going to topple a building. So what they were able to find was that in this very unique circumstance, fracking actually had triggered earthquakes. But what the author of the study really emphasized to me is that this is something that's incredibly uncommon. It was happening when fracking was taking place directly on top of an existing fault, and it was relieving that. Ah. So that's only happened, I think, maybe like 10 times recorded globally. And if you look at it, there are hundreds and thousands, if not millions, of fracking operations and I think it's been cool, too, to see in response to this, this study how states have responded, how the energy sector has responded. 
because there is more interest in looking at how seismic activity works, at how, you know, where fracking is taking place in, in relation to those fault lines. And really, even though it's just an incredibly statistically rare sort of anomaly, I think there has been concern and there has been an effort to, to you know, even protect against that really small risk. Now, the other thing that I've noticed as I've been reporting on this is that there is a little bit more of a risk when you are dealing with the wastewater that's injected underground to frack. And that can actually, that can a little bit more commonly trigger an earthquake. What happens is, um, the way it was explained to me is if you've got, say, two combs with teeth that are interlocking, you can try to like wiggle it, but they're not going to slide unless there's a lubricant in the middle. So if, if you put that water underground on existing fault lines, if there's rock-on-rock rock stress, it can relieve that and trigger an earthquake. So basically, they're they're trying to avoid these fault lines. Um, they're trying to uh, find areas where it's safer. Um, is is this is this something that's being regulated by the state, or is this something the industry is just voluntarily doing? You know, I, th- I think there's a definitely effort on both sides to take care of it. But um, I yeah. think what what's interesting to me is that. You know, it is it is a great thing that science is looking at this, that we are trying to find yeah. ways that we can make it safer. That's that's what's caused the entire industry to develop to the point that it is. I don't think science is ever something that, that is bad for us. But I've been impressed right. with both states and the industry, how they've responded to it and how they're looking at this, trying to mitigate the real risks without having a knee-jerk panic reaction and cutting off all operations. Well, knee-jerk panicked reactions are sort of, um, the norm with alarmists. And I'd like to back up just a little bit and talk oh, um, and, and get your thoughts on who are these alarmists that are, who are the main actors? Is this a, an environmental thing? Are they concerned from, I mean, you know, as you said earlier, um, this is very clean energy. You would think that a lot of environmental groups would be, um, would be for fracking. And yet I think, am I wrong in saying that it is mainly environmental groups that are, are claiming this is dangerous or who are sort of the, the, the main actors? Sure. I mean, with any any activity, there's going to be a cost and a benefit. I think with fracking, the benefit is huge, and it's huge not only in an economic sense, but in an environmental sense. Like we mentioned, it's as you use natural gas more often, it's really cutting carbon emissions. It's making the United States a lot cleaner. But you have to look at this green energy lobby as a, you know, it's a special interest group. And I think that's something that a lot of consumers don't realize. I mean, when I was looking into the numbers, it's really hard to count how much taxpayers support they've gotten. Mm -hmm. But the Energy Department and its predecessors alone have spent more than $154 billion with a B dollars. And I think it's pretty indicative that at this point, you know, there hasn't been any renewable source produced that's been able to meet market demand. I mean, right now, all of the renewable energy sources combined provide less than 15% of all U.S. electricity. That's right. worth a ton of taxpayer support. Imagine how they'd fare in a market that wasn't being meddled with. So I think, you know, right. there is definitely an interest in someone going out, bending the science, promoting alarmism. And, you know, consumers don't necessarily have the time to dig into the science, unfortunately. One other myth that really uh, really sort of lingers, especially with the fracking um, issue, is that uh, they like to say that, Fracking isn't regulated. You touched a little bit on regulations as we've been talking, but, um, you know, there's this idea that, you know, industry can do whatever it wants and there's absolutely no oversight, uh, but that's not true. You know, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about the regulations that are already in place uh, to ensure the safety of this process. 
Yeah, I mean, there is a ton of it. I, I actually spent some time last week digging through a state-by-state comparison of regulation. And I think states have really, part of the reason why it's important that states regulate this as opposed to the federal government is that they're, they're you know, on the ground. They're close to that situation. They know both their consumers, they know their economy, and they know their environment and their geography. And so because of that, they're really in the best position to make an educated decision about how this should be regulated. So as you go through that, I mean, you see pretty much every, from start to finish, every step of energy extraction being monitored from, you know, how it begins, how thick the casing of underground pipes is, how much is disclosed about what's being pumped underneath the ground, what's happening to that wastewater when it comes back up. I mean, just step by step, states have really done a thoughtful job of looking into this. So I I don't think that that's something people should really be that worried about. Well, so then again, the the people who are opposed to fracking, they will often say it's not regulated because there might not be a federal regulation. Rather, it's state by state, correct? Yeah, and I think that's just a a grave misunderstanding because really the the regulators who are on the ground, who are in the states, are going to know the situation far better and be able to tailor those regulations to fit their state far better than some bureaucrat who's sitting 2,000 miles away in Washington. You touched on this a little bit earlier, again, about regulations. You touched on this a little bit earlier about President Obama imposing just last week. He, did, he gave a speech about Native Americans, and he um, has announced that he's imposed uh, new limits on, on fracking and drilling in tribal lands. Um, if you can expand on that a little bit, and, and you know, President Obama, he, you know, he said that he's very concerned about the economic and educational hardships faced by Na- Native Americans, but why will this, this act in particular, limiting um, the, this kind of method of energy extraction on, on on tribal lands, make it harder for, for Native Americans to prosper? Well, I think, you know, so these federal regulations are, are bad for two reasons. They apply, first off, I'll just explain kind of what they do. They apply to both federal lands and tribal lands, which the federal government holds in trust. So it's not applying to state lands. It's not applying to private lands. But I think it's it's a bad idea, first of all, because it's redundant. It sets a bad precedent um, for federal control versus state control. And I think for Native Americans in particular, it's it's devastating. I mean, if you look at tribal lands, they have extraordinary energy resources. They estimate it's as much as $1.5 trillion worth, but it's also extremely underdeveloped. And that's because even before these new round of regulations, tribal lands were harder to do energy exploration on, and that's purely because of red tape. They were subject to four federal agencies reviewing it. Um, you had to get a, go through a 49-step process to get a permit for energy development, and if you want to compare it on state lands or private lands, sometimes that was as few as four steps. So energy companies going and looking for opportunity, you know, they know they're going to have bureaucratic headache if they go drill on tribal lands, and that was beforehand. This is going to just you know, there's going to be so much more red tape and it's going to make it so much more difficult. And I think that's really unfortunate because if you look at Native Americans, one in four of them live in poverty. Um, High school graduation rates linger at 17% below the national average. By the way, the energy industry is one of the top employers of people with a high school education. They have a lot of high-paying sort of work opportunities for people who haven't gone to college. Um, and then, you know, even as the economic recovery has continued in the U.S., Native Americans continue to experience roughly double the unemployment rate of the nation. 
So I think what this policy, while it's maybe well-intended, it puts Native Americans who really need the opportunity at a huge competitive disadvantage to state and, and private lands. And I just think that's really sad. That's, that's, that's really important to know. And again, the announced uh, limits on drilling on tribal lands it was made at the same time he's giving a speech about being concerned about the economic hardship. So I think that's very frustrating for people who know uh, what kind of opportunities this could offer that particular demographic. Oh, I think the president was calling the economic situation of Native Americans a moral call to action. But I think it's pretty, you know, I was reading through congressional testimony of tribal leaders, and they were describing to our lawmakers how frustrating it is to know that they have the same, if not better, energy resources, but that they're being passed over um, just because of the red tape. And you can look at it in the statistics. I mean, tribal fossil fuels dropped 21% in a 10-year period. On state and private lands during that same time frame, they grew by 34%. So I can really imagine the frustration and sympathize with it. Now, not all tribes are going to want fracking on their land, but I do think they should at least have the choice, and they should at least not be in a position where the federal government's making them less competitive. I want to conclude here and, and sort of change courses um, sort of talking about um, the continued conflicts in the Middle East. I don't think you can really talk about energy policy or energy issues without sort of talking and considering um, what's going on in the Middle East. There's a reason to be concerned. You've got 4 million barrels of oil passing through the Arabian Peninsula every day, and, and we have this fighting all around there. Um, and so, you know, when we, as you mentioned, Ukraine as well. Um, so you've got these ongoing conflicts. I think you know, what is, I mean, is this one of the ways that we can explain to Americans? It's not only a clean energy source, but it's so important that Americans, you know, that we as a country become energy independent um, and that we provide, you know, that lawmakers provide us a shield um, from these sort of supply disruptions that, that can result from this unrest in the Middle East um, and, again, in Ukraine. Um, so can you address that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's been pretty indicative that, you know, the price of the pump hasn't gone up a ton, despite, you know, the world order not being in a good place. If you look at the Middle East, what's happening right now, 10 years ago, oil prices would have gone right. up, energy prices would have gone up. But because the U.S. is becoming more energy independent, because we're able to meet more of our needs, I think you've really seen American consumers be cushioned from that. And I think the other benefit is a foreign policy benefit. I mean, the United States has been a lot less beholden to energy-producing countries that are run by despots. Well, Jillian, I think this has been incredibly informative. Um, I hope some of our listeners have learned something about fracking and feel a little bit better about it. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, thanks to everyone who listened. Again, I'm Julie Gunlock with the Independent Women's Forum. You've been listening to our Working for Women podcast. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please give it a thumbs up, share it on social media, or stop by iwf.org for similar content.